infinite God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Second reading is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. This is God's word. Good evening, let me have my welcome. My name is Matt, Matt Fuller. If we've not met, uh, be lovely to do so afterwards. Uh, we're in Jonah chapter 4, so do turn back there. Luke 15 is uh, just in one sense by way of backdrop. Jonah chapter 4. Uh, if you're joining us, we've been in Jonah all this month. Uh, sadly, we come to an end. But we kind of don't at the same time as we get to the end of this book. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in ways which are overwhelming, which are transforming, which are powerful, which we need. And our fathers, we turn back to this ancient book which speaks so powerfully to us in our situation today. Would we hear you speak? Would your word affect us deeply, we pray? Would we leave here with more of a heart like yours for the lost? Would we be more concerned with the fate of those who do not know their right hand from their left hand? Father, would we be concerned for our city? And you're a God of this whole earth. Would we be concerned as you are for the peoples of this world who don't know you? We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1940s, Henry Garrick was a chaplain in the U.S. Army. 
and uh, he'd been doing this job, he'd been chaplain in different institutions for a number of years, but uh, he entered the army during the Second World War in the States. And uh, after a little bit of time uh, on home soil, he was quickly uh, part of the D-Day landings, so there to uh, minister to those. Primarily, he spent most of his time after the D-Day landings in hospital, ministering to soldiers who had uh, suffered horrific injuries. And uh, if you read of his story, it affects him deeply. He is angered by what he sees. He's angered by US soldiers giving their lives to fight a European war, as he puts it. He's angered by this. And uh, after a while, he's given a bit of leave. And so what do you do with your leave? Well, he, he went to Dachau concentration camp after it had been liberated and looked at the horrors there. And of course, as anyone would have been, particularly seeing it for real in the flesh, overwhelmed by what he saw. He was also a little upset. Three of his sons were old enough to sign up to the US Army and all three fought in the D-Day landings, all survived happily, but one, in his words, was, well, had his body blown apart uh, and was disabled the rest of his life. So as a Christian man, he was once wrestling with these issues of forgiveness for those who had affected his countrymen, his own family, a whole race of, uh, in particular, Jews at Dachau. And then in the, towards the end of 1946, November, 90, excuse me, no, November 1945, his commanding officer called him into his office and said, Henry, I'd like you to take on the most unpopular job in the whole of the US Army. Yeah, it's never great, is it? Okay. I want you to go and be chaplain to the senior, senior Nazi prisoners at Nuremberg. And I want you to be chaplain to them while they await their trial. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, can I have a little while to think about it? Took a few days. And he went to be chaplain to 15 of the highest ranking Nazi officers. So this is Goering, uh, the Foreign Secretary von Ribbentrop, you know, senior figures in the regime. And so he went, and in his own words, when he met with them individually, he says, Henry Garrick, I was terribly frightened. Not physically, they were chained. But I was frightened by the absolute depths of evil in these men. Wickedness that the world had not seen before. And now I, I now sat next to. But slowly the men at Nuremberg became to me just lost souls whom I was being asked to help to tell them about Jesus. Now initially most of them were deeply resistant and uh, uh, you can keep your God uh, and dismissive. Uh, eventually over the months uh, it got up to 13 out of 15 of these men used to go to the chapel service he ran every week. And were willing to meet with him and have him open the scriptures with them regularly. And he made quite an impression upon them. So in the middle of 19, excuse me, middle of 1946, June 1946, he was due to return to the US. I mean, he had a family and kids at home. But the prisoners wrote to his wife, saying, Dear Mrs. Garrick, we need your husband. Please, can he stay? Uh, she could have course said, well... Stuff you. <laughs> I want him back here. She said, no, you, he must stay. And all of those 15, uh, along with a few others, uh, met their death on 
the 16th of October, 1946. But Henry Garrick, who was no fool, he was an evangelical Christian, met with all sorts of characters. He was a man in his 50s. He'd lived life. Said he was persuaded that eight out of the 15 had made credible professions of faith and were trusting in Christ before they died. Meanwhile, Henry describes having a box full, a big cardboard box full of letters postmarked from all over the US calling him, Henry Garrick, Nazi lover, Jew hater. You should be killed with them. You're a disgusting man. How can you live with yourself for telling these wicked men about Jesus Christ? Hmm. But then how would you have felt in 1945-6 if you were the sole survivor in your family and every other member of your family had been exterminated? in a concentration camp, in a death camp, how would you feel? How would you feel about Henry Garrick offering God's mercy to some of the most wicked people who'd ever lived? How would you feel about that? How do you feel about the mercy of God that extends to even men such as them? How do you feel about the mercy of God, really? That is the question which weaves its way through all the way through the book of Jonah. How do you respond to God's mercy? Now, if you've been with us, you know that Jonah, uh, all the way back in chapter one, verse one and two, Jonah was called to preach to the city of Nineveh. It was the, the, the major city in the Assyrian empire, not the capital. But the Assyrians were utterly brutal people. Now, they had, been, they had invaded um, Jonah's homeland. They had entered Israel. And what they did with their prisoners, I've told you this before, but you can go and read about it, in the Assyrians' own words, in the British Museum, uh, they used to skin people alive. They would cut people's noses and ears off and let them bleed to death. These are not lovely, nice people. These are wicked. And they had destroyed, uh, wreaked havoc in Jonah's country. And God says, go and show mercy to these men, Jonah, and these women. He doesn't want to. But you can get a hint of why. Let's not be, in one sense, overly harsh upon him. But God said to Jonah, go and warn the city of Nineveh that my judgment is coming. And we saw that last time in chapter 3. Jonah went and uh, told the city, chapter 3, verse 4, the Ninevites, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Wonderfully, the Ninevites say, no, we're so sorry. We repent of what we've done. And God has mercy, so as we had read. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites repented, how they turned from their evil ways, the Lord relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful example of God's mercy to wicked people? Unless you want to see them punished. And that's where we find Jonah. And so at the heart of this passage, here's the contrast. Jonah was angered by God's mercy to Nineveh, verses 1 to 4. But then Jonah was angered by God removing mercy from him. So what you have in this passage is Jonah saying, I don't want mercy for them. I want justice for them. But for me, I want mercy. I don't want justice for me. I just want mercy for me, please. And the Lord points out to him his hypocrisy, his 
double standards and says, no, Jonah, is it not right that I should have mercy upon even the wickedest of people? Isn't that right, Jonah? How do you feel about God's mercy? And so for some of us, that'll cut closely. How do you feel about God's mercy to those you dislike? Fear? Perhaps for most of us it'd be, how do you feel about God's mercy to those you're just indifferent towards? Well, there's a gap between the Lord who wants to have mercy and perhaps our own indifference to those who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Okay, but here's the contrast. We can look at it like this then. Uh, Jonah was angered by God's mercy to Nineveh, verses one to four. Uh, Then secondly, Jonah was angered by God removing mercy from him, five to nine. Uh, And so then the question of the the end of the book, what concerns you? Okay, let's go at it like that. First then, in verses one to four, Jonah was angered by God's mercy to Nineveh. Chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this God's mercy seemed very wrong. And he became angry, literally evil. He became evil. It's very striking. There's, there's a play on words throughout this text. Chapter 3, verse 10, the Ninevites turn from their evil ways. Meanwhile, Jonah becomes evil. But there it is. Uh, verse 1, to Jonah this seemed very wrong. He became angry, evil. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is why I tried to forestall you by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry, really? Now, I don't think Jonah's question is completely unreasonable. He's saying, where is justice, Lord? Now, Jonah's an Israelite. He knows his Old Testament. And so he's thinking, okay, I I know you're compassionate and gracious, but where is justice? So um, the Lord reveals himself in this way as uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, initially to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. But have we got that little comparison? Have we got that? We can whack it up on screen. There we go. So there's um, the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34. Here's how he reveals himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, how do those two fit together? I'll show mercy, but not leave the guilty unpunished. Here, Jonah says, look, I know what you're like. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But what's missing? But where's the punishment of the guilty, Lord? You said that's what you're like, but I don't see it here in front of me. Where's the punishment of the guilty? And all the while since Exodus 34, it is a bit of a mystery. How, how do those two halves of, 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 of verses 6 and 7 fit together? How can God forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet at the same time punish the guilty? How can he do that? Well, it's never explained in the Old Testament. And so Jonah looks at this and says, well, where is justice? Verse 3, I'd rather die than live in a world where those wicked Ninevites are forgiven. You're meant to be our God, 
the God of Israel. I'd rather die than live in this world. Ouch. Now, do you, do you see the strength of where Jonah's coming from? Let's not just dismiss him too quickly. Because if you were a, I don't know, let's put it in these terms. If you were a New York Orthodox Jew in 1942 and someone said to you, go to Berlin and preach a message that will lead to all the people who are ruthlessly, ruthlessly brutalizing your fellow Jews that they can be forgiven. You might not want to do that. You might be slightly scared of going there. Of course, that's what Jonah's been asked to do. Or today, if you're a Christian, one of the very few Christians uh, remaining in a desperate and brutalized ISIS regime that's on its last knees and they're becoming increasingly horrific in crimes, you might well pray, Lord, bring justice, bring justice. I don't care who it is, Russians, Americans, I don't care, just bomb this lot, kill them all. And I, I wouldn't judge anyone for praying that. In those circumstances. And yet you get to the New Testament, and this, well, how do those two fit together? You get to the New Testament, and you realize the prayer for the wicked to be punished and the prayer for them to be converted are very close. The prayer that the wicked are punished and the prayer that the wicked are converted are very close. Because you could turn and say to the Lord, so in 1946, Baron van Ribbentrop, who oversaw utter brutality under the Nazi regime, in the last couple of months of his life was genuinely converted and you forgave him. The Lord might say, yes. How is that fair? Well, because in my mercy and justice, judgment that should have fallen upon him fell upon my son. Jesus Christ. And that is how I can forgive him and yet justice be issued. Judgment does come. Punishment does fall. But it didn't fall upon von Ribbentrop. It fell upon Christ, my son. And if you're a Christian, you've got to say that's true of you. You may have not done the depths of evil. But you don't deserve to be in heaven and the punishment that falls, should fall upon you falls upon Christ. There are, the Bible says, two days of justice and judgment in history. There is the day when Christ returns and everyone will stand before him. And there is the day when Christ died upon the cross. And you have a choice, each and every one of us, you either allow God's judgment to fall upon Christ in your place or you take it yourself. And if you're an extremist and you say, Lord, I, I hate these people that are brutalizing my family, my countrymen, will you judge them? The Lord can say, I can judge them at the cross when Christ dies in their place. Or on the last day, when Christ returns. It's always one of those two. It's a binary choice. But it could be either. Now is the period of history where God is offering mercy. 
And let me say, if you've never done so, let Jesus Christ take punishment for you. Or one day you'll take it yourself. But justice does come in one form or another. Did you see this week uh, the delightful, I don't mean that, Philip Green, um, quite hard to, to love him, uh, but there it is. Uh, Philip Green gets to hold on to his knighthood for a little bit longer. Uh, the, the relevant uh, ca- um, uh, parliamentary committee decided that until the cases, of, until all the evidence against him has been heard, it'll be wrong to strip him of his knighthood, which seems a bit bizarre to you and me perhaps. But what was striking, I thought Frank Field uh, is the MP who's been gunning for Philip Green more than anyone he's been pursuing. And said, uh, let me quote uh, Frank Field, we should be proud of our legal system. It is thorough. What we see here is justice delayed, not justice denied. That's very, one sense, sensible observation. He says, no, I can live with this because it's not justice denied, it's just delayed. And now when we look around the world and its wickedness, it is, well, it's justice delayed. It will come. It will come. Christ will return and right all wrongs. But either judgment falls upon him in your place or it falls upon you. Now is the period of history where God is offering mercy. But Jonah was angered by God's mercy to Nineveh. He couldn't cope with that. So secondly, God decides to teach him a lesson. So Jonah was angered by God's mercy to Nineveh 1 to 4, but then verses 5 to 9, by contrast, Jonah was angered by God removing mercy from him. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. So he doesn't even reply to the Lord. So we're back to chapter 1, verse 3 territory again. God speaks and Jonah runs away. And uh, he runs away east. That's always bad in the Bible. You know that, those of you who are in the book of Genesis uh, for small groups at the moment. Uh, When Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out east. When uh, uh, Cain rebels, he goes further east of Eden. Uh, The Tower of Babel is built because the people move east. Biblically, moving east is bad. It just always is. There's nothing wrong with the east end of London. I'm not having a pop at that. Uh, if you live in Mile End, that's not biblically wicked. But biblically, moving east is always bad. Now, what does he do? Uh, verse 5, Jonah went out to Easter city. He made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Well, God's already just told him, nothing's going to happen to the city. But clearly, he's hoping that his outburst of verse 4 it's, it's me or the Ninevites, Lord. Either I die or they die. He's hoping that's going to have some impact, I guess. But it doesn't. But verse 6, the Lord shows mercy. So verse 6, the, the, Lord, provo- the Lord God provided a leafy plant. Well, we've had this little word before. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord had provided, appointed, a huge fish to save Jonah. Here he provides, appoints a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. Again, there's a little play on words here. It's literally evil. Chapter 3, verse 10, the Ninevites turned from their evil. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah, this seemed very wrong, he became evil. Chapter 4, verse 6, The Lord provided a lovely plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his evil. His mercy to the Lord, from the Lord to Jonah. 
Discomfort, yes, because it's hot in the, to sit in the desert. But more than that, I'm wanting to teach you about your evil, Jonah. I'm wanting to help you here. Easing physical misery, yes, from the burning sun, but also his internal bitterness. Now, what did Jonah think of that? End of verse 6. Jonah was very happy about the plant. Well, of course he was. So we've already been to chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah disliked mercy for Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 6. Oh, I love a bit of mercy for me. I love it when God is kind to me, just not anyone else. Oh, dear. A certain irony there. So the Lord points this out to Jonah, verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided, same word again, appointed a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, appointed a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So here is judgment upon Jonah. So what a contrast we've got. Jonah's saying, I want justice, not mercy for Nineveh. But for me, I want mercy and not justice. Is that all right, Lord? Justice for them, mercy for me. And you seem to have got it the wrong way around, as far as I can tell, says Jonah. Now, the Lord is saying, Jonah, if you want, to, if you want God to deal strictly in justice... You have to expect it yourself. You only want justice? Really, really, Jonah? And let's just have a contrast between your priorities and mine. So I've scribbled it down again on little uh, two columns. So uh, this is, uh, of course, this is just uh, verses 9 and 10. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Well, let's have a look at this contrast. Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow, it, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. So it's not a big deal, is it? Let's be honest, Jonah. By contrast, I'm concerned about this city where there are more than 120,000 who can't tell their right hand from their left. And also many animals. Jonah, are you feeling a little bit petty at this point? Are you? Are you thinking to yourself, Jonah, maybe I'm being a little me, 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 a little self-absorbed, when I'm more concerned about a plant that's been here a half a day than a whole city, where people don't know their right hand from their left hand. Now, that's a biblical term associated with the law in the Old Testament. If you know the law, you do know your right hand from your left hand. So I think here God is saying, here's a whole city of pagans. They've had no news of me. They know nothing about the Lord. They know nothing about how good Yahweh is. Shouldn't I have mercy upon people who know nothing about me compared to you who who knows so much? Shouldn't I do that, Jonah? Jonah? Jonah, it is understandable if you're upset about a plant. I mean, your poor head, it's not got so many hairs on it as it used to, and you're getting a little bit burnt. I get that, Jonah. But shouldn't you care a little bit more for 120,000 people who are going to die? You are self-absorbed. And when I said it out like that, it looks a bit ugly. 
Jonah wanted mercy for himself, justice for others. Happily, God is more generous than Jonah. He's willing to offer mercy to all peoples. So question, if you don't desire to show mercy to others, have you understood of your own need of it, really? If you don't desire to show mercy to others, have you understood your own need? Not deeply. Uh, back in December, uh, December 2016, was the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, uh, which for a history geek is uh, lovely because it's wall-to-wall commentaries uh, on Pearl Harbor, and uh, that's fun. No, that is fun. Uh, and uh, stimulating. I'd, I'd, I'd love you to be persuaded by that. But anyway, the um, one, one character I heard of, I'd never heard of him before, Jacob DeShazer. I think that's how you pronounce his name, if I remember rightly. But um, Pearl Harbor, 7th of December 1941, he was a U.S. Army pilot there and saw the devastation wrought. So hundreds of his uh, colleagues, friends killed, just devastation uh, as the U.S. Air Force in that part of the world uh, was destroyed. Uh, Middle of 1942, uh, a few more planes, he was on a bombing raid over Japanese territory and he ran out of fuel. That's because he'd been shot and it was leaking, not because he's an idiot. But the, um, uh, he ran out of fuel, and uh, mid-1942, his plane went down. And from June 1942 to the end of the war in 1945, he was a prisoner of war. And you don't need to know too much about your history to know that at that time, in that culture, the prisoners of wars under Japanese camps were not treated well. So he was severely tortured, uh, came out... Not the same man, physically disfigured. But the one thing he had been given while he was in prison was a bit of Bible that had been doing the rounds amongst the POWs. And he read it, and he read it, and he read it. And Jacob de Shazer was converted. And in his own words, he puts it like this. I realized that these people, my captors, did not know anything about my saviour, Jesus. And that if Christ is not in a man's heart, it's very easy, indeed natural perhaps, to be cruel. Yet I became a Christian and I realized, here were my prison guards and they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. They didn't know Christ. And so, well, given the culture they were brought up in, of course, it's no surprise that brutality and cruelty came. And so at the end of the war, he quit the Air Force, went to Bible college in the States, and then from 1950 until he died, was a missionary to Japan. And happily saw many, many converted. Indeed, he got to meet some of those who'd been pilots and drop bombs on Pearl Harbor. And... Because there's a man in Jacob de Chazes who thinks, I've been shown great mercy by Jesus Christ. Of course I must show it. To even those who've brutalized me, of course I must. By contrast, Jonah says, I want mercy for me and justice for them. There's a horrible inconsistency. So What? All right, 10 minutes. Here's the question of verse 11. So what concerns you? Verse 11, here's what the Lord says. 
Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Should I not care deeply for those who have never heard the name of the Lord? Shouldn't I, Jonah? Why don't you? Now, of course, people, all the commentators say, oh, that's an odd ending, isn't it? It's like a TV series that ends, and you, get, you watch 22 episodes, it ends on a, oh, there's going to be another season, isn't there? It just ends, and you think, well, how long are we going to wait? A year? A year to find out what happens next? But there's nothing else that comes. That's it. What does Jonah do? We don't know. But, of course, it's very deliberate, because it ends and says, Jonah, what are you going to do with my concern? And of course, it's very deliberate because it says to you and me, well, you're Jonah and I'm Jonah. And should you not be concerned with the fate of thousands in this city, millions in this city, billions across the globe who don't know their right hand from their left hand? They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Should you not be concerned more about them than your own comfort. Now, I don't know if many of us here have a sort of hatred and fear like Jonah had of uh, the Ninevites. There may be some people that we do scared of or, or, or dislike enormously. Uh, and then the application is pretty clear for you then. The Lord has had mercy upon you. How can you not have it upon others? But I guess for many of us, it cuts a bit more like this question. How can we be so concerned with ourselves? And sometimes it's gone, but sometimes petty concerns in our own life and not concerned about 120,000 and many more who don't know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can that be? And I guess the challenge for you and me is it is not that we're unwilling to have mercy, but we're just too self-absorbed to do so. We care more about our own plants. Now, I know it's London, not many of us have plants. We live in flats. But we care more about our stuff and our comfort and our ease than we do about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Should we not be more concerned for those who don't know his name? Uh, Earlier in the week, I was browsing the OMF website um, because it's great. Um, And I encourage you to do so. The one little video I enjoyed, uh, Steve, not this Steve, uh, but another Steve who'd been in Asia 15 years. He was talking about, you just got to take risks. You have to take risks for the name of Jesus Christ. He said, in 15 years here, I've had four colleagues murdered 40 imprisoned by the government. He didn't say precisely where he was. Obviously, it's a closed country. He said, but obviously, I would be willing to be killed at the hands of the government today if just one person became a Christian because of that. Obviously, I would. All right, yeah, obviously. Um, You've got to take risks if you're concerned for the sake of others. 
Oh, I know, he said, you know, 15 years ago when I turned up, in the seven provinces where I was working, there was one church. There are now 28 churches. In the last 15 years, there have been about 3,500 converts, and they're now praising the Lord Jesus Christ in seven languages that never praised him before in the history of the planet. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Um, that's fantastic, isn't it? Isn't that fantastic? Should I not be more concerned for those who don't know their right hand? from their left hand, even for the sake of my own safety? Should I not be more concerned? So the challenge of Jonah is, it cannot be that you and I are more, excuse me, that you and I are happy to enjoy the grace and mercy of God for ourselves, but ignore the plight of those around us. It cannot be that we are more concerned with our own priorities our own comfort than those who don't know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've had no revelation. They don't know their right hand from their left. It can't be. What concerns you? Let me put it in three ways. I've even scribbled them down. There we go. Concern for a lost city, concern for the scary, uh, concern for lost peoples. A comment on each. I think we've got to be concerned for a lost city. If we understand Jonah rightly, I don't think we can pass through London as a stepping stone. I don't think we can just pass through and think, well, this is a useful place to be for a period of my life. Uh, and it's the next stepping stone to in my career or, or relationally. Uh, it's just a stepping stone to the home counties and then I'll be where I've always want to be. Uh, we can't view London like that. We just can't. That's just utterly self-absorbed. Even if we know we're only here for a period of time, we've got to think, God has placed me here. God has placed me here in a network of relationships. And I have to care about the people I pass each day, the same ones each day. My colleagues, my neighbours, if you know them in London, but my colleagues, my friends, the ones I know. I'm here for a season. I've got to be concerned about these people. I can't just pass through for my own comfort. I can't do that. Go and make disciples of all nations is the great commission that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. And Christians, we need to ask, how are we working that out? What am I contributing to that great commission? You've got to ask that question. Got to be concerned for our lost city. Let me push that a little bit further. I think we need to be concerned for the scary Uh, What do I mean by that? Jonah went to those he was a little bit scared of uh, and also didn't like. Now, that may not be a personality, but there are plenty of people in London I think probably we find a little bit scary. Uh, And for many people, it would be just, oh, I don't, I'm a bit nervous about some Muslims. They just seem a little bit determined. And there are some parts of London where I go to a sort of white chapel and I don't like the number of burkas and and I I feel exposed and if I'm a woman without a headscarf I feel very anxious in certain parts of the city I think you and I just got to be realistic and say we've got to go to the scary in different ways but we've got to work out a way of doing it 55% of this city is non-white now ethnic minorities Every week, 2,000 migrants arrive just at Victoria bus station. 100,000 a year migrants arrive here. 
This city is changing radically year upon year upon year. There are more people in London who don't speak a word of English than the whole city of Newcastle upon time. That is people, not those who speak English in Newcastle. I know we're a bit iffy about that. I know we're a bit iffy about that accent. Um, so there's about 260,000 people in London who don't speak a word of English. Now, you and I aren't going to do everything about that, but we've got to be a part of the issue. We've got to be a part, excuse me, we've got to be a part of the problem, I'd suggest. Some can do a little, some take part in an international cafe. That's fantastic. As a church, we do some things. We, you know, we, we fund and support Jimmy and Gina Aikenhead, who, who are here in the morning congregation and who are reaching out to Somali Muslims. That's their job. That's what they do. It's great that they do that, uh, particularly where we are, just up on the Edgware Road. Fantastic. But I think, we, you and I, we need to say, we need to help. We need to support church planting in different languages. We need to, where there are indigenous people willing to, to, to plant churches, start them, we need to fund them and back them. If we're serious about the fate of people in this city, just since the year 2000, the African population of London has gone up by 45%. This is a radically changing city of people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. We've got to be concerned about that. We need to welcome the nations. Concerned for a lost city. We need to be concerned for the scary. Jesus, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that every individual needs to go and find someone they're terrified of. Although it's probably a good thing um, to do it and, and share the gospel with them. But I'm saying as a church, we need to back these things. And one thing we have as a church is giving potential to fund these things. And we've got to be doing that. At last, we need to be concerned for lost peoples. Now, there are many of those in London, in this city alone. But along with that, we do need to look up and look outside of this city and this country. Can I borrow, just, you're going to stand along the front, so I hadn't warned you of any. Can I borrow the band? If you just stand along the front, and one, two, three, four, that makes ten. Right, so ten people, just stand along the front of the stage. Just along the front. Okay. Here's a good thing I read. The Joshua Project is a fantastic website full of brilliant information about unreached people groups. If you put the world in 10 people, here's the world in 10 people, and this is not stereotyping, by the way. Um, If you put the world in 10 people, one of them is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, active, brilliant. Two are cultural Christians. You know, like there are many in the UK. They go to church once a year, twice a year. If you put them on a census form, they tick the box Christian. But globally, two. So one is a genuine believer. Two are cultural Christians. Four, four have access to the gospel but reject it. So plenty of those in the UK, plenty of those all over the world. But there is access to a church. There are people who can tell them. Three people have absolutely no chance of hearing the gospel. No access, no church, no one going to them. Three people, 30%. Thanks, guys. That's a big number, isn't it? And again, you and I can't fix all of them. But we've got to be concerned. 
haven't we? We've got to be concerned. We have to be global Christians with a global concern because our God is a global God, said John Stott. Globally in this world, 81% of Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists don't know a Christian. So practically, what do we do with that? I mean, that's slightly overwhelming, isn't it, as a fact? What do we do with it? Here's some basic things. For some of you, go. Go. Now, one or two of you have that inkling in your heart. Don't let it die. Go. Please go. And yeah, it's easy to get slowed down by the events of life. Don't mishear me. I'm not, but you, know, you can say, oh, I plan to go, but oh, now I've married and now I, and, oh, maybe I'm... Go. Take your husband or spouse with you. Go. Some can do that. It's never too late to make that decision. Go. A hundred visas to go to Thailand. Have you seen the photos? It's a really nice place. <laughs> go. Some need to go. Some here I know are thinking about that. Don't let, don't let that die. Speak to Steve and Anna tonight. Sign up. Go. We'll fund you. Don't know how, but we'll do it. Yeah, we'll find the money. Of course we will. Go. We need to go. Some need to go. Uh, second little thing, we want to send to the nations. Our stated ambition as a church is to raise our missions budget as a percentage every year. And we don't do it every year. Some years we do, some years we don't. At the moment, our shortfall is I've lost track. It's about £100,000 for this year. So it's quite hard to project to say, oh, we'll, we'll put it up by more next year. It'll just come out of the overdraft. We haven't got an overdraft. Um, we need money in order to send people to go. All these people that don't know the Lord... I want, forgive me for this, I want Brian Mack to go. And he speaks about a gazillion languages already. He speaks about 15. He can translate the Bible into 20 new languages before he dies. And that's what he should be doing. He should go. But he needs money. We need to fund him to go. Uh, And the Muirs, you read through the book, the Muirs, they need to go. You know, they're Mandarin speakers. Where are they going to go? But he needs money. We need money to send people. Some have got to go. We need money to send people. We need to pray. Look, there's a whole book of mission partners. Uh, I don't know how great you are at praying. If you only manage one a week, if you don't do anyone, just pray for one a week. If you do two a week, go to three. Um, some people only function Monday to Friday. That's all right. Just pick five and keep praying for five. That's all right. And sleep in at the weekends. That's okay. Um, but Pray. All sorts of information comes in the monthly prayer diary. OMF, you can, you can sign up to their, whatever you call it, prayer mate, gazing, gazing, and uh, uh, things that will appear. Probably not with that noise. Um, pray. We can't be unconcerned about this, can we? The Lord says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? And Jesus says, should I not have concern for even the one. I'm desperate to see people saved, if I use that language. The heart of the living God is to have mercy upon people. But of course it needs us to be reminded that we've been shown mercy. The guy who uh, 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 was in Pearl Harbor and became a Christian in a concentration camp, Jacob de Chaser, uh, um, when he went back to Japan... One of the things he did is he wrote a number of tracts and uh, one day he gave out his tract 
from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. He was at Tokyo bus station uh, and was giving out these tracts. And he gave it to one man, uh, Mitsuo Fushido, who uh, took it and uh, went home with it and read it. And he was a fighter pilot at, a sort of bombing pilot at Pearl Harbor and read this tract. And, well, in his words, he said, I was overwhelmed when I came to read the words of Jesus in Luke 22. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said, I would do anything to take back the events of 29 years ago when I bombed these people in Pearl Harbor. I can't do that, but there's mercy for me. How very wonderful. There's mercy for you. It's a wonderful mercy that we're shown in Jesus Christ. And he says, you will pass it on, won't you? You will show the same concern I've had for you. You will show it for others, won't you? Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, forgive us when we're not concerned for the fate of the lost, for those who who don't know their right hand from their left hand, who have never heard the name even of Jesus Christ. Of course, we get caught up in our lives and there's so much going on in our lives and London is so busy, but Father, how can it be? Would you remind us Would you deepen that utter conviction within us of how dependent we are upon your mercy? And would we not keep it to ourselves? Would we be unable to say, I'm okay, I've had mercy, and be unconcerned for the fate of those who have not? Father, please, would that desire to share what we've learned, to pass on the relationship that we have with you, would that burn within us? And drive us to be concerned for those in this city who don't know you, for those in this country, for those in this world. Father, change us, we pray, so we are greatly, overwhelmingly concerned for those who don't know you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.